Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group and we're studying the words of the Buddha. In this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden, we're starting a new book today. This is volume 11. It's titled The Realms of Existence. This is a book that we're going to be studying for many months because there's almost 150 chapters in this particular book. So doing 10 chapters a week, we're probably going to be studying this book for a good three and a half, four months by the time we get to the 148th chapter. And what I'd like to do is spend just a little bit of time kind of setting up this book for you and helping you to understand how to approach it. Because this particular book really dives into the cycle of rebirth, helping you to understand all the various realms of existence. And depending on where you are in your practice, this may be an opportune time for you to start exploring that. And perhaps if you're early in your practice, maybe this isn't necessarily the best time to actually approach the cycle of rebirth. Nonetheless, I'm here to teach you and share the teachings of the Buddha with you regardless. We're going to be studying the first 10 chapters of this book. And as you learn about the cycle of rebirth, it's very important to never believe anything that you're learning about whether it's the cycle of rebirth or any other aspect of the teachings of the Buddha. You're never believing what you're reading. You're learning it, you're reflecting on it to independently verify it, and then you're practicing to be able to see the truth. And much of what you're going to learn about the cycle of rebirth are things that you may not be able to go out and actually independently verify today, depending on what experiences you've had in your life over the course of your life. For some people, they might have had contact with beings in the hell realm, the animal realm, of course. I'm sure you've had contact with beings in that realm. Some people may or may not have had contact with beings in the afflicted spirit realm. I'm sure you've had contact with beings in the human realm. You're having that right now. And you may or may not have had experience with contact with beings in the heavenly realm. So if you've had those kind of experiences where you have had contact with beings in these various realms, as you learn the teachings of the Buddha, he's explaining that to you and helping you to understand what these various realms are and how they function and what beings are in those realms, what realms you can be reborn into and the condition of those realms and all kinds of various aspects of the realms of existence. But if you haven't had contact with beings in those realms, you may not be able to independently verify some of what's being shared. But you can independently verify the cycle of rebirth. I have some content that if you haven't seen this yet in our Facebook group, that I go through 11 individual steps of how you can actually independently verify the cycle of rebirth, that we are being reborn over and over and over again, which has a connection to the realms of existence. So if you haven't seen that yet, you're always welcome to send me a private message or an email or ask a question in the Facebook group and I'll post it there so that you guys can see it or I'll send it to you in a private message or something of this nature. 
The Buddhist teachings, whether it's the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the natural law of gamma, meditation, and all the other things that he's teaching you in order to awaken to enlightenment where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, you can readily independently verify that today. You can actually look at the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, all these kinds of things, and readily verify that. And you'll know through learning, reflecting, and practicing that these teachings are the truth. And as you're practicing and you see the improved condition of the mind, you'll absolutely know that these teachings are the truth. And as you decide to move into the cycle of rebirth, you can then ultimately verify that this is the truth as well. Keep in mind that this wise individual who shared with you how to completely eliminate the discontent feelings, he didn't just slip in something into his teachings and like, aha, I got you, right? I told the truth about all that other stuff, but aha, you know, I slipped this in just so that you would believe it. That's not what the Buddha is actually doing. He's sharing with you the cycle of rebirth because if you're on your journey to enlightenment and you're starting to remove the pollution out of your mind, you might actually start observing your past lives. You might start having vivid memories of your past lives. You may start having interaction with beings in any of these various realms. And if you have contact with beings in the hell realm, the afflicted spirit realm, or the heavenly realm, it might shake you up if you don't understand these realms. So he's sharing this with you for an intended purpose, so that as you start having these memories of potential past lives, as you start to perhaps have contact with beings in this various realms, you can then understand that and your mind won't be shaken up. You won't feel like you're going insane or you're going crazy or there's something wrong with you or what you're experiencing is abnormal. You might even start hearing voices at different times. But I suggest that as you experience these things, that you treat it just like you were in a restaurant and there's a table next to you that the people are talking at, they're human beings that are talking. You can hear what they're saying, but you're not really paying attention to it. You're just focused on your conversation with the person at your table. So if you do this with these beings, you can pay attention and hear what they're saying. You can interact with them, but ultimately you would like to just focus and build that concentration to be able to focus on what it is that you're doing. And ultimately, by the time your mind gets to enlightenment, you still might have occasional contact with these beings, but it won't shake you up anymore because you understand that this is kind of par for the course, so to speak. This is something that ultimately can transpire. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to experience this, but it is something that you can experience on your journey to enlightenment. So if you're experiencing the vivid memories of past lives or you're experiencing communication and contact with beings in other realms, this is all completely normal. Just like you have contact with maybe a dog or a cat, which is in the animal realm, you may end up having contact or you may have already had contact with beings in the hell realm, the afflicted spirit realm, or the heavenly realm. So the Buddha is teaching this to you for those reasons. He's also teaching it to you because as you make your way to enlightenment, if you get to enlightenment, wonderful, outstanding, you're never going to be reborn anywhere in any of these five realms. But if you fall short of enlightenment for any reason, you'll be reborn in one of these five realms. And that's oftentimes a question that students ask, like, okay, Mr. Buddha, or okay, Mr. or Mrs. Teacher, I'm learning with you. I'm spending all this time and effort and dedication. What happens if I fall short of enlightenment? Well, the Buddha is going to explain that to you. 
He's not using the realms of existence to guilt, shame, or fear you into learning and practicing his teachings. He's just explaining to you the truth so that if you fall short of enlightenment, you'll know what is going to transpire. And part of what shakes the mind up in terms of the fear and all the other discontent feelings that you experience, particularly fear around death, it's the fear of the unknown. So by a Buddha sharing with you the wisdom of the cycle of rebirth and the realms of existence, he's explaining to you what truly is transpiring so that you can know that. And then you can have certainty that this is what's going to occur. Because if you have craving to know what is going to occur, and then you don't know the answers, well, this craving is going to continue to persist. And now that craving to know if the Buddha didn't teach these things, that craving to know will shake up the mind and hinder you from getting to enlightenment. Because remember, I've shared that there's two ways to eliminate a craving. You can cut it off and let it go and eliminate it from the mind, or you can actually fulfill it. By fulfilling a particular craving, then you can actually eliminate it. So if you've always had a craving to go to the Philippines and you just go to the Philippines and see what it's like, you can cross that off your list and your mind won't be craving it anymore because you've been there, done that, you've seen it, you understand it. So the same thing is true about this cycle of rebirth. If an individual in the world is always wondering what's going on beyond this human realm, then the Buddha is explaining that to you it can fulfill that craving. It can eliminate and extinguish that craving so that you no longer need to worry or have fear or anxiety about what may or may not occur. You can know the truth that, okay, if you get to enlightenment, there's no more rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. And you can independently verify this. And you can see that if you fall short of enlightenment, that there's constant rebirth. And you've been reborn countless times in the past. If you need to be reborn several more times in order to get to enlightenment, okay, so be it. You don't need to be scared or fear or be worried or have anxiety about the cycle of rebirth. That's not the reason why the Buddha taught it. Because in some communities and some traditions that you might have learned from in the past or you might have seen here and there, they might use rebirth either as a way to guilt, shame, and fear you into learning particular teachings, or it might be used as a carrot on a stick to kind of like guide you towards certain things. That's not what the Buddha is doing at all. So when you study the original words of the Buddha and you see what he taught around the cycle of rebirth in the realms of existence, you can understand it as information that is going to help you to be able to understand true reality and what's truly occurring in the world. And then you don't believe it. You learn it, you reflect on it, and then you can practice to be able to independently discover the truth. And you may or may not be able to do some of that practice now. So as I share these teachings with you, as I always do, I'm going to invite those people in Zoom. If you would like to read a chapter, you're welcome to read a chapter. If nobody volunteers, then I'll read the individual chapter. Then after somebody reads it, I will share some teachings on that chapter, and then I'll open up to any and all questions that you guys have. So as we go through this book over the next three, four months, feel free to ask any and all questions. If there's something that I have independently verified and I can tell you how I independently verified that, I will share that with you. If there's something that I haven't independently verified, I'll be able to tell you that too. So let's look at the first actual teaching from this book, chapter one. Remember, this is volume 11, chapter one. We're gonna go all the way through chapter 10 today. And you can get these books from downloading them from our website, either buddhadailywisdom.com 
or you can take that same file and go print it, or you can get printed versions on Amazon or at the temple here in Chiang Mai, and you can learn from this book. This is probably the thickest book. This book in volume one is the largest book. There's a lot of content in here. And there's even teachings that are outside of the cycle of rebirth where towards the end of this book, the Buddha is sharing some teachings about generally how to get to enlightenment so that you can escape the cycle of rebirth. So here's the first chapter. If there's anyone who's interested in reading this in Zoom, feel free to raise your hand electronically and I'll be able to see that and you're welcome to read it. And remember, just like all the other chapters, you have the words of the Buddha in the actual chapter. Then you've got the reference to the individual section of the Pali Canon where this discourse came from. And then you've got the words from me that are going to help you to further understand each one of these individual chapters. So, since nobody's raised their hand, I'll go ahead and read this first chapter. This one is titled Existence. And the first several chapters are there to kind of help you set up and understand what the book is all about. Looks like Biplob is raising his hand. Perhaps you would like to read Biplob? If you would like to read, sir, you can unmute yourself and you're welcome to read. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Existence. And what marks is existence? There are these three kinds of existence. Sense sphere existence, form sphere existence, formless sphere existence. This is called existence. With the arising of cleaning, then is the arising of existence. With the elimination of cleaning, there is the elimination of existence. Just this novel eight-fourth path is the way leading to the elimination of existence. That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentrations. Okay, thank you, sir. So here, this is the Buddha just setting up the three types of existence. Remember, there's five realms, which is the hell realm, the animal realm, the afflicted spirit realm, the human realm, and the heavenly realm. These are the five realms that he taught, but then he categorizes those into specific types of existences. There's the sense sphere existence, the form sphere existence, and the formless sphere existence. I have not seen any teachings in the original Pali Canon that explains what each one of these are. But based on my experience, I can share with you what I understand them to be. This sense fear existence, this is essentially referring to all existences in all the five realms. Because every single realm, there's the six sense bases and beings are interacting and having contact through these sense bases and they're now experiencing discontentedness based on the central desire. So there's central desire in each individual consciousness or each individual mind of beings in all these five realms. Then the form sphere existence. These are existences or beings that are in the realm of animal and human. These are the realms that have physical form. So in the animal realm and the human realm, we have physical form. Then this formless fear existence, these are the existences and beings that are in the formless realms, like hell, afflicted spirit, and the heavenly realm. These are the individual existences that are formless. They don't have any physical form. And what the Buddha is explaining here is he's saying, okay, these are the three types of existences. And then what brings those about is clinging. And this is a little section from Dependent Origination. For those of you guys that have been studying Dependent Origination, this probably looks very familiar to you because there's a certain line in there where the Buddha talks about 
the arising of clinging with clinging as condition, then there comes to be this existence. So as long as the mind is clinging in this life, then there's going to be this existence because the mind is clinging and holding on to this world. So the mind is going to keep coming back into a new existence over and over and over again. But with the elimination of clinging, there is the elimination of existence, meaning that if you eliminate the clinging of the mind where it's no longer holding on to anything, then the mind can escape this whole cycle of rebirth. It can escape this world. And now there won't be continuous existence in the cycle of rebirth. This is different than what you might hear from some people. Some people say that once you get to enlightenment, that there's no existence anywhere, that you've completely extinguished all existence and you'll never exist anywhere. Well, the Buddha didn't explain it that way. He explained that there's no existence in the cycle of rebirth. He didn't declare once somebody attains enlightenment, what comes next, if anything at all, other than to say that there's no longer any existence in the cycle of rebirth. So saying that there's no longer any existence in the cycle of rebirth is very different than saying there's no existence anywhere whatsoever. So here the Buddha is explaining that if there's no clinging, then there's no existence. And you can see in his other teachings as we go through this book and other books where he's not declaring what does or doesn't come next for an enlightened being, that he just left it as an undeclared teaching. And as part of his teachings on the Four Noble Truths, he describes the Eightfold Path as the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. And that's what's going to eliminate the craving and the clinging in the mind so that you can actually get to enlightenment. The Eightfold Path is the core central teaching. It is the path to enlightenment. And that's the way that leads to the elimination of discontentedness. But here he's describing it also as the way that leads to the elimination of existence. Because if you can eliminate craving and clinging from the mind, the mind will be enlightened. But eliminating craving and clinging from the mind, now there's no more causes and conditions that lead to existence in a new life. You're going to see this in one of the chapters that we talk about today and that we study where the Buddha is explaining to you that craving is the fuel that causes rebirth into another existence. So if you use the Eightfold Path to eliminate craving, desire, attachment in order to get to enlightenment, well, you've eliminated craving in order to get to enlightenment, but also you've eliminated craving, which is the cause that leads to rebirth. So that's why you're not getting reborn as well. So the mind having eliminated craving and clinging, it's like a two for one special that if you eliminate craving in order to eliminate discontentedness, because you've also eliminated craving, then you're not going to experience rebirth in the cycle of rebirth either. So let me know what questions you guys have here. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. Okay, Koshi, it looks like you have a question. Go ahead, ma'am. Uh, what is the difference between sense fear and form sphere? So sense fear, the way that I understand it is it encompasses all the realms, all five realms, where form sphere existence incorporates only animal realm in the human realm because those are the only realms that have physical form. Okay. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So let's move on to chapter two. And you can see here, there's a lot of content for you guys to read beyond just the words of the Buddha. Is there someone who would like to read this one? Okay, I'll go, oh, there you go, Kushi, go ahead. Yeah, I can read it. The production of renewed existence, first discourse. Venerable Sir, 
It is said, existence, existence. In what way, venerable sir, is there existence? If Ananda, there were no karma ripening in the sensory realm, would sense fear existence be discerned? No, venerable sir. Thus, Ananda, for being hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving, Kama is the field, consciousness the seed, and craving the moisture for their consciousness to be established in an inferior realm. In this way, there is the production of renewed existence in the future. If Ananda, there were no Kama ripening in the form realm, would form sphere existence, be discerned, no honorable sir. Thus, Ananda, for being hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving, karma is the field, consciousness the seed, and craving the moisture for their consciousness to be established in the middling realm. In this way, there is the production of renewed existence in the future. If Ananda, there were no karma ripening in the formless realm, would formless fear existence be discerned? No, venerable sir. Thus, Ananda, for beings hindered by ignorance and knowing of true reality and fettered by craving, karma is the field, consciousness the seed, and craving the moisture for their consciousness to be established in the superior realm. In this way, there is the production of renewed existence in the future. It is in this way, Ananda, that there is existence. Okay, thank you, Kushi. So here, the Buddha is talking about what leads to this rebirth to a certain degree. He's talking about the Kama. What Kama is, is as we've explored in other classes, courses, and retreats, that there's this cause and effect or this action and result. It's the results of your decisions. So your decisions are going to determine if you get to enlightenment. Your decisions are going to determine if you don't get to enlightenment. Your decisions will determine what realm you're actually born into and what is the condition of your existence in that particular realm. Everything that we experience as a result of our decisions. One of the things that you're doing on this path to enlightenment, a significant thing that you're doing, is you're working to establish or to extinguish your unwholesome gamma. By extinguishing your unwholesome gamma, there is no unwholesome gamma to be experienced. So therefore, you've escaped all your unwholesome gamma. You've experienced all your unwholesome gamma. You've extinguished it. And now in the rest of this life, if you've gotten to enlightenment, you're only experiencing wholesome gamma because you're only making wise decisions that are producing wholesome results. So what the Buddha is explaining here is, okay, if you haven't created any unwholesome gamma, if there's no gamma ripening in any of these three existences or these three types of realms that he's talking about, would you experience existence in any of these realms? And his students are saying no, because there's no gamma for us to be experienced in those realms. So if you get to the end of this life and you still have unwholesome gamma that you haven't extinguished, that means you're going to need to be reborn in one of these five realms in order to extinguish that gamma. But if you can extinguish all your unwholesome gamma in this life, then there is no gamma ripening. There is no gamma to be experienced in those other realms. So therefore, this is your last stop on the train. It's time to get off the train. It's time to get out of this cycle of rebirth, right? So that's what he's explaining here. And then he's saying, okay, thus Ananda, for beings hindered by ignorance, that's that unknowing of true reality. That's the top line that you understand from dependent origination. 
and then fettered by craving, meaning being held down by craving, burdened by craving. The mind is polluted and tainted with craving. Gamma is the field, consciousness the seed, and craving the moisture for their consciousness to be established in an inferior realm. In this way, there is production of renewed existence in the future. So here what he's describing is as long as you have ignorance in the mind, there's going to be craving, desire, attachment. And now you need to extinguish your cravings in this life in order to now extinguish this gamma so that there is no longer a consciousness. And he's using this analogy of planting where there's a field, there's a seed, and there's moisture because people were farmers during that time frame and they were really well aware of this analogy. So here I've written it in the comments where I'm sharing reflections to help you understand this field being the natural law of gamma, that that's the field that is occurring. That's what's allowing you to continue to come back because now if the consciousness is the seed, there's a place for this consciousness to land in the field because there's still gamma to be experienced. So now the mind or the seed is going to land in the field and then there's this moisture, which is the craving. That's what allows the consciousness to continue to grow, continue to go, continue to be experiencing this constant rebirth over and over and over again. But if you eliminate the cravings, which means you've eliminated the moisture, then the seed can't grow. And then with the seed not being able to grow, it's not going to actually be planted and grow inside this field or inside this experiencing the gamma from its unwise decisions. So that's what the Buddha is explaining to you here with these three types of existences, that it's the ignorance and the craving that's allowing the mind to continue to keep coming back over and over again. When you pinpoint it, it's the craving that is the fuel that's causing rebirth. But the only reason why craving exists is because of ignorance. So that's the whole reason why the Buddha is describing ignorance here first is because of ignorance, craving continues to exist. If you gain wisdom of how to eliminate craving and then you actually do the work to eliminate it, then there is no ignorance in the mind. And because there's no ignorance in the mind, there's not going to be any craving either because you've actually extinguished all your cravings. That's what's allowing the mind to get to enlightenment. Any questions on this particular chapter, you can put it into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'm going to move on to chapter three. This is a similar discourse, just the second one. Okay, so I'll just go ahead and read. If anybody in Zoom ever would like to volunteer, just raise your hand and I'll see that before we get to each chapter. Chapter three, the production of renewed existence, second discourse. Venerable sir, it is said, existence, existence. In what way, venerable sir, is there existence? If, Ananda, there is no gamma ripening in the sensory realm, would sense fear existence be discerned? No, venerable sir. Thus, Ananda, for beings hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving, gamma is the field, consciousness the seed, and craving the moisture, for their intention and desire to be established in an inferior realm. In this way, there is production of renewed existence in the future. If, Ananda, there is no gamma ripening in the form realm, would form sphere existence be discerned? No, venerable sir. Thus, Ananda, 
For beings hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving, gamma is the field, consciousness the seed, and craving the moisture for their intention and desire to be established in a middling realm. In this way, there is the production of renewed existence in the future. If Ananda, there were no gamma ripening in the formless realm, would formless sphere existence be discerned? No, venerable sir. Thus Ananda, for beings hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving, gamma is the field, consciousness the seed, in craving the moisture for their intention and desire to be established in a superior realm. In this way, there is the production of renewed existence in the future. It is in this way, Ananda, that there is existence. Okay, so this is essentially very similar to what I described earlier in the previous chapter. You guys didn't have any questions on that chapter, but if you have questions on this one, feel free to share that. I'll not go through and explain it again because I've already explained it in the previous chapter. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter four. This one is titled The Conduit to Existence. Venerable Sir, it is said, the conduit to existence, the conduit to existence. What, Venerable Sir, is the conduit to existence? And what is the elimination of the conduit to existence? Radha, the craving, desire, excitement, lust, engagement, and clinging, mental standpoints, adherences, and underlying tendencies regarding form. This is called the conduit to existence. Their elimination is the elimination of the conduit to existence. The craving, desire, excitement, lust, engagement, and clinging, mental standpoints, adherences, and underlying tendencies regarding feeling. This is called the conduit to existence. Their elimination is the elimination of the conduit to existence. The craving, desire, excitement, lust, engagement, and clinging, mental standpoints, adherences, and underlying tendencies regarding perception. This is called the conduit to existence. Their elimination is the elimination of the conduit to existence. The craving, desire, excitement, lust, engagement, and clinging, mental standpoints, adherences, and underlying tendencies regarding volitional formations, choices, decisions. This is called the conduit to existence. Their elimination is the elimination of the conduit to existence. The craving, desire, excitement, lust, engagement, and clinging, mental standpoints, adherences, and underlying tendencies regarding consciousness. This is called the conduit to existence. Their elimination is the elimination of the conduit to existence. Okay, so the first thing is to be sure you understand what a conduit is. If you have an electric current. The conduit is the wire connecting the two. That's what allows the electric to flow from one location to the next location. That's the conduit or allowing the ability of it to flow from one location to the other. So the question that's being asked of the Buddha by his student is what's, al what's allowing us to experience one existence and then that leads to the next existence? What's the conduit that connects these two existences together? and allows it to continue. So the Buddha here is saying craving, desire, this excitement, those pleasant feelings, the lust, which is also craving, engagement, like being so engaged or obsessed with something, and clinging, 
holding on. The mental standpoints, oftentimes these are like views and opinions that an individual has that they're just holding on to those so tightly. The adherences, the things you're adhering to and holding on to. The underlying tendencies, this is like similar to the the craving and clinging regarding form. What he's talking about here when he's talking about form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness is the five aggregates. This is something that we've explored in other chapters and other books where some people refer to them as the five aggregates or the five collections or the five elements. These are the five elements or the five things, the five aggregates that determine that a being is a living being. A living being is going to have physical form. There's going to be feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. And you can go through and independently verify that this definition of what a living being is holds true because each living being is going to have physical form, which you can see you're a living being. You know that you have physical form. You have certain feelings. Those are the pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. That's the conditioned feelings. Then there's going to be certain perceptions that you have. Perceptions are like your views and opinions of the world and the way that you perceive the world around you, the way you look out at the world and things may or may not be true, but that's how you perceive the world. Then there's certain volitional formations or choices and decisions that you make. You choose to do things. You have free will. That's your volitional formations. And then there's consciousness or the mind itself. These are the five things that all living beings have. And you can see that you have all five of these things, just like a dog, a cat, a snake, a squirrel, a bat, a worm, a cow, all these living beings, a fish, all these things have the five aggregates. And then as long as the mind is clinging to these, the Buddha is saying that's the conduit. That's what's allowing one to go from one existence to the other. That's what's allowing this consciousness to now be spawned into a new consciousness. He talks about it in another discourse we're going to study today as fuel. And the way that I describe it and the way that I think about it is if you have a fire that has logs, these logs are the fuel. If that fire continues to have logs put onto the fire, then as long as there's fuel, there's going to be a spark. And now the spark carried by the wind, it lands and ignites a new fire. And it's a completely new fire. It's not the same fire. It's a completely new fire. Well, the same thing is if you have fuel, which craving, desire, attachment is the fuel, then it's going to spark a new consciousness. And here it's being described as a conduit. So the Buddha explains it in different discourses, different ways to be able to help you understand it. So here it's being described as a conduit and he's talking about clinging to the five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations and consciousness. But here in a little bit, you're gonna see where he describes it as this fuel that's keeping this fire burning. So what questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Okay, looks like Tonka has a question here. What would be is sensory realm? Do formless beings have senses? So as I mentioned, I haven't seen anything in the original words of the Buddha in the Pali Canon, which describes the sensory realm, the form realm, and the formless realm uh, exactly of what those things are. So as we know that the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago, he taught a plethora of teachings. And what we have in the Pali Canon is enough that you can get to enlightenment today 
but we know that we don't have everything in the Pali Canon. This is one of the reasons why you need a teacher and you need a guide, someone who's either enlightened or very close to enlightened to be able to guide you to enlightenment because not everything you need is in the Pali Canon. There's other reasons why you need a teacher too, but this is one of the reasons because some of what the Buddha taught is missing from the Pali Canon. In over 2,500 years of impermanence, it's just not there. As it was transferred from person to person to person, it's been lost. So there's various things that we don't have, but there's enough there that we know how to get to enlightenment today. This content here, understanding that craving, desire, attachment is what leads to rebirth, that's something that's important that you need to know. But those individual realms, while it would be wonderful if we knew exactly what the Buddha was teaching on those things, knowing what I've shared is enough for you to be able to understand is that the sense fear realm or the sensory realms I think of those as all the realms because beings in those realms, they're going to have central desire. And then the formless realm, those are beings in the hell realm, the afflicted spirit, and the heavenly realm. So if you understand that, and then of course the form realm is animal realm and the human realm. If you understand that around sensory sphere existence, form sphere existence, and formless sphere existence, that would be enough for you to understand and then get into the other teachings about the cycle of rebirth and the realms of existence. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter five. Okay, I'll go ahead and read this one. This one is titled, The Production of Future Renewed Existence. Monks, what one intends and what one desires and whatever one has obsession towards, this becomes a basis for the maintenance of consciousness. When there is a basis, there is a support for the establishing of consciousness. When consciousness is established and has come to growth, there is the production of future renewed existence. When there is the production of future renewed existence, future birth, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of discontentedness. If monks, one does not intend, and one does not desire, but one still has an obsession towards something, this becomes a basis for the maintenance of consciousness. When there is a basis, there is a support for the establishing of consciousness. When consciousness is established and has come to growth, there is the production of future renewed existence. When there is the production of future renewed existence, future birth, aging, and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of discontentedness. But monks, when one does not intend, when one does not desire, and one does not have an obsession towards anything, no basis exists for the maintenance of consciousness. When there is no basis, there is no support for the establishing of consciousness. When consciousness is unestablished and does not come to growth, there is no production of future renewed existence. When there is no production of future renewed existence, future birth, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure and despair are eliminated. Such is the elimination of the whole mass of discontentedness. So this is just another way of the Buddha sharing that it's craving, desire, attachment that's leading to continuous rebirth. 
He's explaining it in a slightly different way, incorporating a little bit of dependent origination into it and helping you understand that it's this longing, the yearning, what you would potentially have learned from me in a very first course. If you started out with any kind of programs or courses or retreats with me, I make sure that I start with helping students to understand the three universal truths and the four noble truths. And I explain the definition of a craving, desire, attachment. It's not the object, it's the longing and yearning for it. Here, the Buddha is using the word obsession, where oftentimes when you have extreme cravings, it can feel like an obsession. But remember, there's a spectrum here. If you have deep anger and hostility and bitterness, you're probably on one side of the spectrum with your craving where there's almost an obsession there chasing after something. But then there's kind of lighter versions of that where here the Buddha is talking about desire. But then there's also even lighter versions like this intended, right? Where the mind is kind of like, oh, I really want to get some chocolate ice cream. I really would like to get that candy. And then when you can't get it, it's like, oh, you're just kind of irritated. You're not angry. You're not venomous, right? You're not hostile. Just like, mm, man, I just wish I could have got that chocolate. I wish I could have got that ice cream. The mind's just kind of like a little bit icky and kind of a little bit irritated because it didn't get what it wanted. So that's like the spectrum of the cravings, desires, attachments that are going to cause a spectrum of discontentedness. We oftentimes talk about it in the extreme because it's easier to understand. It's easier to identify. It's easier for you to be able to see when we talk about this mental longing and strong eagerness and then the discontent feelings that come with that. The anger, the frustration, the hostility, the guilt, the shame, the fear, and all those other things. But remember, there's a whole spectrum of cravings and there's a whole spectrum of discontentedness as well. So if you have any even slight little tiny craving or clinging in the mind, there's going to be discontentedness. By the time you get closer and closer to enlightenment, the real significant discontentedness, the real strong feelings have diminished. You might just be dealing with some little residual craving, some little residual clinging, where you just kind of feel a little bit icky every once in a while. You might go several months where you feel quite peaceful and you're noticing the joy in the mind, but then every just once in a while, you just feel a little bit icky, a little bit off. You're not quite you know, on your game, so to speak. That's that little residual clinging and craving that you would like to eliminate. So that's what the Buddha is talking about here. If you have any aspect of these cravings, from the very lightest one to the most significant ones, there's going to be renewed existence. So you need to be able to extinguish all of that. What questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter six. This one is called the Stations of Consciousness, First Discourse. Ananda, there are seven stations of consciousness in two spheres. What are the seven? There are beings different in body and different in perception, such as human beings, some heavenly beings, and some in states of sorrow. That is the first station of consciousness. There are beings different in body and alike in perception, such as the heavenly beings of Brahmas or God's company born there on account of having attained the first jhana, that is, the second station of consciousness. There are beings alike in body and different in perception, such as the abhasara, heavenly beings, that is the third station of consciousness. There are beings alike in body and alike in perception, such as the sabhakana, 
I can't pronounce all of these words, heavenly beings. That is the fourth station of consciousness. There are beings who have completely transcended all perception of matter by the vanishing of the perception of sense reactions and by non-attention to the perception of variety. Thinking, space is infinite. They have attained to the sphere of infinite space. That is the fifth station of consciousness. There are beings who, by transcending the sphere of infinite space, thinking, consciousness is infinite, have attained to the sphere of infinite consciousness. That is the sixth station of consciousness. There are beings who have transcended the sphere of infinite consciousness, thinking, there is no thing, have attained to the sphere of nothingness. That is the seventh station of consciousness. The two spheres are the sphere of unconscious beings and, and secondly, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. Now, Ananda, as regards to the first station of consciousness, with difference of body and difference of perception, as in the case of human beings, and so on, if anyone were to understand it, its origins, its elimination, its attraction, and its dangers, and the liberation from it, would it be fitting for him to take pleasure in it? No, venerable sir. And as regards to the other stations in the two spheres likewise, no, venerable sir. Ananda, to the extent that a monk, having known as they really are, these seven stations of consciousness, and these two spheres, their origin and elimination, their attraction and danger, is freed without attachment, that monk Ananda is called one who is liberated by wisdom. Okay, so what the Buddha is talking about here is the various stations of consciousness, of how the mind moves from one existence to the other, and even explaining these kind of in-between phases. This isn't something that I'm able to independently verify, so it's not something that you ultimately need to understand in order to actually get to enlightenment. One of the other things that you start to see here and that you're going to see in other chapters in this book too is where the Buddha is explaining the different realms in a lot of detail. We tend to think nowadays about the heavenly realm as just the heavenly realm. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, they had ways of distinguishing the various beings within those realms. So here you see one type of heavenly being. Here you see another type of heavenly being. You're going to see how the Buddha segments hell into many different types of hell. He segments the heavenly realm into many different segments. All of these things were things that people understood and were trying to understand at the time of the Buddha, but it's not something that you need to understand today. You don't need to spend your time trying to understand what's called the cosmology of what existed during the lifetime of the Buddha, because during the lifetime of the Buddha, they believed in multiple gods. They segmented heaven in certain ways. They segmented hell in certain ways. You'll see the Buddha describing all kinds of intricate details about individual beings in all these different realms, where today we more generalize these realms. And this is actually better because it allows your mind to have space to actually learn the things that are going to lead to the liberation. Understanding the various realms is helpful because, as I mentioned, if you start having contact with beings in these realms, you'll know that you're not going crazy. And if you end up falling short of enlightenment, you know that you're going to be reborn in one of these realms. And these types of things can be helpful. And if you see existences that you were in any of these realms at different times, this can all be helpful for you. But if you're 
trying to learn all the cosmology that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha, this isn't something that you actually need to retain in order to get to enlightenment at this time. So a chapter like this, what I encourage students to focus on is not the individual types of beings and each individual station and trying to remember all these different stations. Instead, you can look to what the Buddha is saying here to Ananda. Essentially what he's saying is, okay, if you understand these stations of consciousness and you understand the origin of them, you understand the elimination, the attraction, the dangers in how to get liberated from these stations of consciousness, which is the Eightfold Path. So he explains that, yeah, being in existence in any of these realms is ultimately undesirable. It's uninteresting. It's not something that you would aspire to achieve. You're going to see his chapter here in a moment where he talks about any existence anywhere is essentially undesirable, that it's foul smelling. So what he's motivating you to do is encouraging you and guiding you to get to enlightenment. And if you understand that existence in any of these realms is going to bring about discontentedness and you're still stuck in this continuous cycle of rebirth, would it be fitting for you to take pleasure in rebirth in any of these realms? That's what he's saying here. Would it be fitting for you to take pleasure in being reborn in any of these realms if you understand that upon rebirth, it means that you still have ignorance, you still have craving, you still have anger, you're still experiencing this discontentedness over and over again. Why would you take pleasure in anything that exists in any of these realms? Because as soon as you allow the mind to get those conditioned pleasant feelings, then it's going to end up in the painful feelings. So if you can train your mind to eliminate the conditional pleasant feelings, then you can eliminate the conditional painful feelings. Then you can get beyond all of these conditioned feelings where the mind is just always peaceful and always joyful, where you have unconditioned happiness or unconditioned feelings where the mind is now unconditioned. It's no longer experiencing this conditional happiness. You can have this unconditional happiness or this unconditioned joy where there doesn't need to be this condition met, this condition met, this condition met. Instead, your mind can just always reside in the peace and the joy. So the Buddha is saying, would you take pleasure in any of the things that are in any of these stations of consciousness, knowing that you taking pleasure in these things is going to ultimately end up with you having painful feelings? Because if you allow the mind to get those pleasant feelings based on some condition, then when that condition changes, now your mind's going to end up in the painful feelings. And his student Ananda says, no, venerable sir, you know, there's nothing fitting to take pleasure in, meaning conditional pleasure. By the time you get to enlightenment, you're fully enjoying life. You're fully fulfilled. You're fully satisfied. No matter what happens in your life, everything's wonderful. Life is so easy, so straightforward, so seamless, so effortless because your mind's fully awake. But on the way there, the Buddha is talking about not taking pleasure, meaning conditional pleasure, not taking pleasure because I got this thing, right? Because if you crave chocolate, for example, and you get all these pleasant feelings when you have chocolate, when you can't get chocolate, then you're going to be in painful feelings. So it's not a matter of like you never need to eat chocolate, perhaps, but you need to learn how to eat something and enjoy it without taking conditional pleasure that you can just know like, oh, wow, that tastes really good. But realize that that's not permanent and 
that you're not allowing the mind to have conditional pleasant feelings, but no, you can enjoy a conversation with your friends or do these different things that you're going to do in life. You're going to have lots of fulfilling experiences, but as soon as the mind clings to any of these, wanting them to be permanent, that's where you're setting yourself up for the conditional feelings that are ultimately going to end up with you in painful feelings. So that's how you can use a chapter like this, where a lot of the stuff before this, you're not going to need to learn necessarily, but ultimately the Buddha is getting you to a point where he says, okay, now that you understand all these stations of consciousness, does it make sense for you to exist in the world and continue to take pleasure in all these conditional experiences that you're having over and over and over again? knowing that you're just going to end up in these painful feelings. And of course, ultimately, the answer that he's getting from Ananda is no, it doesn't make sense. And that's where the Buddha says, okay, one who understands this and liberates the mind, their mind is liberated by wisdom. And that's ultimately getting to the enlightened mental state. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. All right, I'm not seeing any questions here. So I'm going to move on to the next chapter, which is chapter seven. This is Stations of Consciousness, second discourse. And now the Buddha is going to use kind of an analogy to help you understand this a little bit more. Okay, he says, monks. Oh, there's Kushi. Go ahead, Kushi. Yeah, I can read it. Thank you. Stations of Consciousness, welcome. Second discourse. Monks, there are these five kinds of seeds. What five? Root seeds, stem seeds joint seeds, cutting seeds, and germ seeds as the fifth. If these five kinds of seeds are unbroken, unspoiled, undamaged by wind and sun, fertile, securely planted, but there is no earth or water, would these five kinds of seeds come to growth, increase, and expansion? No, Honorable Sir. If these five kinds of seeds are unbroken, unspoiled, undamaged by wind and sun, fertile, securely planted, and there is earth and water, would these five kinds of seeds come to growth, increase, and expansion? Yes, Venerable Sir. Monks, deforestations of consciousness should be seen as like the earth element. Excitement and craving should be seen as like the water element. Consciousness, together with its nutriment, should be seen as like the five kinds of seeds. Consciousness monks, while standing, might stand engaged with form, based upon form, established upon form. With a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness, while standing, might stand engaged with feeling, based upon feeling, established upon feeling, with a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness, while standing, might stand engaged with perception, based upon perception, established upon perception, with a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase, and expansion or consciousness while standing might stand engaged with volitional formations, choices and decisions based upon volitional formations, established upon volitional formations with a sprinkling of excitement, it might come to growth, increase and expansion. Monks, 
though someone might say separated from form, separated from feeling, separated from perception, separated from volitional formations, choices or decisions, I will make known the coming and going of consciousness, its passing away and rebirth, its growth, increase and expansion. That is impossible. Monks, if a monk has abandoned craving for the form aggregate with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. If he has abandoned craving for the feeling aggregate with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. If he has abandoned craving for the perception aggregate with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. If he has abandoned craving for the volitional formation aggregate with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. If he has abandoned craving for the consciousness aggregate, with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. When that consciousness is unestablished, not coming to growth, non-generative, it is liberated. By being liberated, the mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated. By being unagitated, one personally attains Nibbana enlightenment. One understands destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence. Okay, thank you, Kushi. So here, this first part that the Buddha is talking about, he's describing these seeds, because you can think about the consciousness as a seed, that it's going to continue to grow and send off more and more seeds, right? If you have a plant that grows from one seed, now that plant grows, and now it has more seeds and it sends off all these seeds. But if you eliminate the causes and conditions that are allowing this plant to grow, which from one of the first chapters, the Buddha was talking about gamma as the field, the consciousness as the seed, and the craving as the moisture. If you eliminate those things of craving, there's no moisture for the seed. And if you eliminate the unwholesome gamma, there's no field. So the seed can't actually grow. So this is a good way to kind of think about it. So you understand what your ultimate goal is, is to eliminate craving, which is going to eliminate your unwholesome gamma as you're eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance, cultivating generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. This is going to help you to produce only wholesome gamma. So here there's some things that the Buddha is talking about, but ultimately what he's getting to is he's talking about craving and clinging. And he's talking about how by clinging or craving for the five aggregates, this is going to produce continuous renewed existence. And then he gets here and he talks about how someone might say, when he's talking about this, this is like other teachers. This is like other students. Because remember, during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were multiple people teaching. And it was claiming that it was their teachings that were leading to enlightenment. While the Buddha knew it was his teachings that were leading to enlightenment. So various people might have been saying different things amongst the, the various uh, communities of teachers. But the Buddha knew that what they were sharing wasn't actually going to lead to enlightenment. So he's saying, monks, though someone might say, separated from form, separated from feeling, separated from perception, separated from volitional formations, I will make known the coming and going of consciousness 
its passing away and rebirth, its growth, increase, and expansion. That is impossible. The reason why he's saying that is impossible is because you can't just separate yourself from these things. Separating yourself is one aspect of eliminating craving, but you need to actually eliminate the craving. That's what the Buddha is talking about here, is that you need to abandon the craving for the five aggregates, not just separate the mind from it, but you need to actually eliminate it. And he talks in other discourses, and you can see this and independently verify for yourself that there's kind of two stages to eliminating a craving. There's separating yourself from it, and then there's actually extinguishing it from the mind, actually abandoning it. So if you've ever had like a craving for coffee or alcohol or some other object or sex or something like this, you can notice that you can separate yourself from a craving. Like if you were in a relationship with a certain partner and you separated yourself, like you guys were away from each other, you were away from each other, you were separated, but you still had the craving in the mind to have sex. Or you might have separated yourself from the alcohol or the drug or something like that. But for a period of time, you still had a craving in the mind for that particular thing. So it's not just separating the mind from the five aggregates, which is going to help you to understand the coming and going of consciousness and the passing away, the rebirth, the growth, increase, and expansion. The Buddha is saying it's impossible for you to know this through just being separated from these things. Instead, you need to abandon the craving. You need to eliminate the craving. So if you understand this two-staged process to eliminate a craving, this can actually really help you. The first thing that you would like to do, because what the Buddha is guiding you to here in another teachings is to eliminate and abandon craving, desire, attachment. You can understand that there's the separation from the object of training the mind to separate from it, not be around that particular thing. But then when you're not around that particular thing, because the mind is somewhat sensitive in that time frame, now you're working on eliminating the craving. And once you eliminate the craving, if you happen to be around that thing, you already have eliminated the craving. There's no way that you're going to now pick up a drink or do some other thing with this particular craving that you might have. So there's cravings where you're going to need to separate yourself from it. Then you're going to need to work on extinguishing it and abandoning it from the mind. But then you're going to end up coming in contact with that particular object. And remember that the craving isn't the object itself. In some cases, the mind is being around that particular thing, like the alcohol, the drugs. You're never probably interested in being around that stuff. But say perhaps you walk in to a particular restaurant and you're eating at a restaurant and they're drinking wine or they're drinking alcohol and you happen to be eating at that restaurant and now this is going on. By the time you eliminate your craving, you will have no interest in picking up a drink whatsoever, for example, right? Or like if you remember some of the examples I've given about coffee, when I first separated my mind from the coffee, I was able to easily be brought back into the coffee shop by the aroma because the mind still had the craving and the mind was still sensitive. So I was easily able to go back into the coffee shop because there was still that craving, there's still that longing and yearning. But then once the craving is completely extinguished, not only did I separate myself from the coffee for an extended period of time, but I then eliminated the craving. So now when I go around coffee shops and smell it, it's like, hmm, that's a really nice smell. 
but there's no craving or interest to even pick up a cup of coffee and drink it because I know what that does and what it does to the mind. I'm just not interested in experiencing that ever again. So you can use this to your advantage to know that, yes, whatever cravings you have, once you identify what those are, separate yourself from it, then work on abandoning it. And in some situations, you still may come in contact with that particular object. But if you truly abandon the craving, you won't have any interest whatsoever to pick up that cup of coffee or that drink or whatever else the mind was potentially craving that you know could be detrimental to your life practice. But then there's other cravings like, say, your mobile phone. So you have a craving for your mobile phone. You're going to need to distance yourself from that. And you guys might have remembered the example that I've given where at one time I noticed this fear came up in the mind when I was away from the mobile phone. So I had to separate myself from it on multiple occasions. And as I was doing that, I was eliminating the craving. And then ultimately, when I eliminated the craving, of course, I still use a mobile phone because there's nothing unwise about using a mobile phone unless you do it with craving desire attachment. So you're going to need to separate yourself from certain cravings and then you're never going to ingest that particular thing again like alcohol or drugs or something like that because you've abandoned the craving you're never going to pick that thing back up again. But then there's other things that you're going to need to separate yourself from abandon the craving and then you're going to still come in contact with it but you know how to pick it up use it and then put it back down and you're not craving and clinging to it. So here the Buddha is talking about the five aggregates, but I'm kind of expanding it beyond that to be able to understand how the mind needs to eliminate craving is first separate yourself from it and then train the mind to abandon the craving. And that goes for all cravings, desires, attachments, not just the five aggregates here. Let's see. By the time the Buddha gets to the end of this discourse, he's describing how when there is no more craving, desire, attachment, then the mind is liberated, that the consciousness can't become established over and over and over again. And when the mind's liberated, it's steady. That's that unshakable mind, that steadiness. Then when there's steadiness in the mind, there's this contentedness that is in the mind. Then when the mind is content, there's no agitation whatsoever. When an individual or a being is unagitated, they've attained enlightenment, right? That you'll see one year, two years, three years, you're not agitated, you're not even the slightest annoyed, not even the slightest dislike towards another person, you'll know your mind is liberated. And then when your mind is liberated and you're enlightened, you'll also understand that you're never going to experience rebirth ever again. And that you've lived this pure life, you've lived this holy life. Sometimes I refer to it as a pure life. You've lived this pure life, you've lived it. Of course, when you first started, you were into certain unwholesome things, but then you went through a period of transition and you moved the mind to this holy life or this pure life. The holy life has been lived. The pure life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. You've investigated the teachings. You examined them. You reflected on them. You've practiced them. You now have completely transformed the mind. So what had to be done has been done. You've done it in this life. And now there's no more state for this existence. So the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy for the rest of this life. And then you can be confident that you're never going to be reborn ever again. And by the time you get to enlightenment, you will have seen that by arising wisdom, in order to eliminate ignorance, you have now extinguished craving. And by extinguishing craving, 
your mind is now peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And you will see that dependent origination has been completely dismantled. And you'll know that you're no longer experiencing discontentedness. And therefore, you're never going to experience rebirth ever again. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'm going to move on to the next chapter. This is chapter 8. Here, this one is titled, A Small Amount of Existence is Not Praiseworthy. Monks, just as even a small amount of feces is foul-smelling, so too I do not praise even a small amount of existence, even for a mere finger snap. Monks, just as even a small amount of urine is foul-smelling, a small amount of saliva is foul-smelling, a small amount of pus is foul-smelling, a small amount of blood is foul-smelling, so too I do not praise even a small amount of existence, even for a mere finger snap. Okay, so what the Buddha is describing here is that there's no pleasure in existence in terms of in the unenlightened state. By the time you get to enlightenment, you know, you've gone through countless lives in your last life. You have experienced a certain amount of misery and despair. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you're going to be like, wow, I could do this. This is quite nice. Like it's quite fulfilling, quite satisfying because now everything is enjoyable. Everything's fulfilling. But leading up to that point, you need to be able to see that there's no pleasure in existence in terms of the conditional experiences that you have because the mind just goes into this conditional excitement and happiness and it drops off into the painful feelings. So if you saw existence as something pleasurable and you enjoy experiencing those conditioned pleasant feelings and then you enjoy those painful feelings that you experience and then the neither painful nor pleasant then why do any kind of work to escape the cycle of rebirth and ultimately get to enlightenment but if you understand what enlightenment is and that that's what you're working towards hey you will be interested in in doing that so the buddha here is explaining how feces or poop or uh, excrement is foul smelling even the smallest slightest little bit so if you've ever had just a small little bit of feces on a piece of paper or on the floor or in your underwear or something like this or urine or any of these other things you know that even just a small little amount of it is foul smelling so the buddha is using this imagery this analogy this story to be able to help connect with you because remember he's teaching orally so one of the ways to get people to remember your teachings is you give them lists right like the four noble truths the three universal truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, the Ten Fetters. Give people lists because they're going to need to remember that list. You also repeat things over and over and over again. If you look at the teachings of the Buddha, he's constantly repeating things. But then you also give these illuminating stories, these interesting stories that people can remember and be like, oh yeah, you know, when you're in the bathroom and you smell that little bit of feces, you might remember this discourse that, oh yeah, the Buddha taught that existence is you know, undesirable, essentially. It's not praiseworthy. It's something to not aspire for. So these are the ways that a Buddha is going to teach, particularly in an oral tradition where he's trying to help you to remember his teachings. So just like all of these things are foul smelling, he's saying existence is the same. And this is where you can understand that if you've ever been taught in any part of teachings, whether it's other traditions, 
that aren't considered to be Buddhist or people that consider what they're teaching to be Buddhist, there's some places that will teach you that the whole goal is to be reborn. The whole goal is to delay your enlightenment and not actually get to enlightenment so that you can be reborn. Here you can see in the original words of the Buddha, that is just not true. That if somebody's encouraging you to not get to enlightenment in order to be reborn, the Buddha is saying, no, that's not the actual goal. And you can see that through the totality of his teachings. And you can see that here. The Buddha didn't delay his enlightenment in order for him to keep coming back over and over and over again. But unfortunately, there's many people in the world that are practicing what they think are Buddhist teachings. And they think their ultimate goal is to keep coming back into the world over and over and over again. And that's really unfortunate because there's no guarantee of what realm they're going to come back into. So the ultimate goal is to train your mind, extinguish all the pollutions in the mind, eliminate those 10 fetters, get to enlightenment so that you're not continuing to experience discontentedness over and over, but you're also not continuing to experience existence over and over. And here's just a small little discourse where you can see that from the Buddha. Any questions that you guys have here? Okay, it looks like Tonka has a question here on Facebook. Why would most of people want to live forever if possible? when it is not pleasant. That's the thing is people aren't understanding that, right? People are being taught that, okay, if your life is miserable here, as long as you believe in these particular things, you're going to now experience this other existence, which is going to be so pleasurable, right? Because if life right now for them is miserable and they think that if I can just believe these group of things, then after I die, everything's going to be so wonderful for me and it's going to be so pleasurable because with central desire in the mind, that's what the mind wants. It wants to chase after those pleasant feelings. So if what you're experiencing now is unpleasurable and you think if you can just believe these particular teachings, you're going to get something that's amazing and pleasurable, then people might decide to believe in those things. But the Buddha never taught to do that. The Buddha never taught to believe. The Buddha never taught to seek and chase after pleasant things because it's just conditional experiences that are ultimately dissatisfying. Instead, what you're looking to do is train your mind, get to the peace and the joy in this life. So now you can experience the rest of this life with everything being fulfilling, everything being satisfying, that you don't have all these conditions, all these expectations, all these wants, that you can ultimately train the mind to let all that go and experience the peace and the joy, the steadiness, the stability, the liberation, the personal professional relationships are blossoming. You have this concentration, this clarity in the mind. You're not even in a bad mood anymore. That's the ultimate goal. But unfortunately, some people are being misled due to their sensual desire. They're chasing after that afterlife of what they think is going to be pleasurable. But it's unfortunate because once they die, they're going to find out that that stuff's not true. But then they're going to come right back into some other existence with continued ignorance. The mind's going to continue to have that unknowing of true reality and keep experiencing this cycle over and over and over again. So the Buddha is helping you awaken to true reality here to be able to see it for yourself so that then you might decide to motivate yourself to then progress towards enlightenment. And that's something that each person can decide to do on their own. But of course, you'll need guidance to be able to help you get there. All right, so now we'll move to this next chapter, which is chapter nine. Let me just check one more time. Tonka's asking questions on Facebook and YouTube. Go, go Tonka. <laughs> 
All right. So here's chapter nine. One called a being. Venerable sir, it is said, a being, a being. In what way, venerable sir, is one called a being? So here the Buddha is going to help you understand how to determine what a being is. Okay. One is stuck, Radha, tightly stuck in desire, longing, excitement, and craving for form. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck in desire, longing, excitement, and craving for feelings. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck in desire, longing, excitement, and craving for perceptions. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck in desire, longing, excitement, and craving for volitional formations, choices, decisions. Therefore, one is called a being. One is stuck, tightly stuck in desire, longing, excitement, craving for consciousness. Therefore, one is called a being. So here, this is where the Buddha is essentially connecting the five aggregates and helping you to see that it's the five aggregates that determines what is a living being. The way that he defines a living being is through these five aggregates. A living being is going to have form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness, these five things. If a being has these five things, and you know it's a living being. And this is helpful for you because it will help you to practice the first precept. The first precept is talking about living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. That's something that the mind needs to cultivate. Because if you have hatred or anger or ill will towards a living being, the mind is not going to be liberated. It's still going to have that anger, hatred, and ill will. And now you might make unwise decisions towards that living being that then produces unwholesome karma for you. If you produce unwholesome karma, now you're going to need to experience that unwholesome karma either in this life or some future life, which means there's going to be continuous existence over and over and over again. So by understanding what a living being is, you can then practice the first precept to live compassionately for all living beings, and now you can cultivate loving kindness and compassion for all living beings. And this will help you to figure out, is this bacteria a living being? Does it have physical form? Does it have feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, consciousness? No, it doesn't. Does a virus have physical form, feelings, perception, volitional formations, consciousness? No, it doesn't. Does this tree or this plant have all five aggregates? No, it doesn't have all five aggregates. So when we say that you're killing a tree or you're killing a plant, you're not actually killing it. You can't kill something that's not a living being. We're harvesting a tree. We're harvesting a broccoli or a cauliflower. But in the unenlightened state, we tend to use language that isn't really appropriate to represent true reality. So it's important that as you're making your way to enlightenment, that you really study vocabulary and see how common individuals that are talking, they're talking in ways that oftentimes doesn't reflect true reality. And you would like to get closer and closer to talking through true reality so your mind can be very clear that I'm harvesting this tree or I'm harvesting this broccoli or this cauliflower. You're not killing it. But if you were to say, 
injure and kill a cat or a dog or a snake or a fox or a squirrel. Yes, that's a living being. And you would like to cultivate loving kindness and compassion for all living beings and practice that first precept. Because when you're causing harm to a living being, now this harm can easily come back to you because of the natural law of gamma. So that's why the Buddha is helping you to understand what a living being is so that you can now more readily awaken to the natural law of gamma, making wise decisions to cultivate loving kindness and compassion for all living beings rather than causing harm to any particular living being. Any questions here on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So we'll move to the very last chapter for today. This is chapter 10. Kushi, you would like to read? Go ahead, ma'am. Craving is the fuel of rebirth. I declare Vacha, rebirth for one with fuel, not for one without fuel. Just as a fire burns with fuel, but not without fuel. So Vacha, I declare rebirth for one with fuel, not for one without fuel. Master Gautama, when a flame is flung by the wind and goes some distance, what does Master Gautama declare to be its fuel on that occasion? When Vacha, a flame is flung by the wind and gone some distance, I declare that it is fueled by the wind. For on that occasion, the wind is its fuel. And Master Gautama, when a being has laid down this body but has not yet been reborn in another body, what does Master Gautama declare to be its fuel on that occasion? When Vacha, a being, has laid down his body but has not yet reborn in another body, I declare that it is fueled by craving. For on that occasion, craving is its fuel. Okay, thank you, Kushi. Here you can see very clearly, very concisely, how the Buddha is explaining that craving is the fuel that causes rebirth. Just like a spark is carried by the wind, and that wind is going to keep that spark lit, and now it lands and lights a new fire, the thing that's keeping the mind continuing to come into new consciousness over and over and over again is craving. That's the fuel. So as long as you have craving in the mind, it's going to burn and burn and burn. And now, as long as that's in there, it's going to produce a new existence. And you can see that very clearly here. And you can also verify this. I have written something where you can go through, I think it's five different things or six different things where you can independently verify that craving is the fuel that causes rebirth. And I'll just give you one of those here in our class today, that if you think about what the Buddha is describing is that craving is the fuel that causes rebirth. And as you know from dependent origination, every being that comes into the world has ignorance and there's also craving in the mind, right? There's those 12 interlinking steps that causes rebirth. So that means every being coming into the world, they're going to have craving. So think about a baby. If you have been around the birth of a baby or you know about a birth of a baby, when a baby is in the mom's stomach, oh, it's happy, it's jolly, it's hanging out, it's got the umbilical cord, it's floating around in all that fluid, and life just couldn't be better, right? It doesn't have to do anything, it's just hanging out, and it's able to get its food through that umbilical cord, it doesn't have to do any work whatsoever. But now, when labor comes and the baby comes out of the mom's womb, right away, the mind is discontent. The baby 
right? It's going to start crying. Why? Because it's discontent. Why is it discontent? Because of craving. It was craving. It was longing. It was yearning. It was wanting this experience in the womb to be permanent. Because of its ignorance, its unknowing of true reality, craving consists in the mind, exists in the mind. And now when there's craving and it's craving that permanent comfort in the womb of its mother, when it experiences impermanence, which that baby doesn't understand, it now experiences the discontentedness. So you can see every baby that's born, it experiences discontentedness because it has craving in its mind. So that craving is from its previous life, that the whole reason why we're coming into existence in this life is because we had cravings in our previous lives. And now the goal is to extinguish your cravings in this life. And as you do, you'll see the mind becoming more and more peaceful, more and more joyful. And you'll know that you're on the path to extinguishing these cravings. And it's just a matter of you extinguishing all your cravings in this life and that you'll eventually get to enlightenment in this life. So you can independently verify that here. But if you would like to see all the other ways that you can independently verify that craving is the fuel that causes rebirth, you can post something in the Facebook group. You can send me a private message. You can schedule personal guidance. I can share that with you because I wrote this up for another student many months ago. And then I just save it because I know it's a common question the students ask, how do you independently verify this? So I've done the independent verification on this and the other teachings that lead to enlightenment. So as you need help to independently verify, that's where a teacher provides you the guidance so that you can then independently verify it. So you're not believing anything about the teachings of the Buddha. So do you guys have any questions on this chapter that craving is the fuel for rebirth? You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, it looks like Kushi, you have a question. Go ahead, ma'am. I have a question, but regarding loving kindness. So because I have come across certain situations and there is like a shield that I feel and because of that I cannot do loving kindness for every person. So uh, if I share you an example, there is this, uh, I don't know why people do this, but due to certain reasons for them, but uh, if if I am traveling alone, then people would feel feel more free to like talk to a girl who is traveling alone or like comment on her anything or talk on her back or something like that. And uh, it doesn't bother me or I can uh, still be fine. But then uh, there was this uh, one guy, he was like uh, in his 50s, 60s, he had white hair. He also had his wife, but like, from his way of, I don't know, his body language and everything, I could feel like, uh, yeah, he's going to speak something or approach. So I, I like, uh, try to, uh, yeah, defend myself. Like, I don't know, but but we we had the situation where he was like just right behind me on a flight, and then he told like, you you are the most luckiest girl, and then he he tried to say this like multiple times and i ignored it like for a few times i i i assumed like okay he would stop he would stop by me ignoring but then i had to tell him 
yes sir are you telling me anything uh, and he was like you are the luckiest girl because you got this whole three seats uh, empty and everything and i said it's uh sorry sir i'm not talking to you and uh, uh, yeah i felt like i wasn't practicing loving kindness during that time because i don't know i had this a bit of anger in there and uh defense more like a shield and then if uh, something like this happens then when i'm out i'm all, always like having these thoughts coming up or like a shield that i feel that i need to keep in order to make myself safe so yeah there's i know that there is nothing wrong that's going to be happen because i'm always surrounded by people and yeah but uh little things like this i don't know what yeah can you help sure so this is the mind having what we might call conditioning right or what the buddha is describing as clinging that maybe you've had certain experiences in the past or maybe you've learned about certain experiences other people have had through the news or newspapers or personal conversations and because the mind is clinging to those experiences now you think that this situation is going to lead to that same experience and now you feel like you can't be loving and kind because that's going to open you up to some kind of harm where instead what you need to be able to understand is that you need to let go of that conditioning and be loving and kind but still make wise decisions that you could have smiled at him and said oh thank you sir yeah you're right i am kind of fortunate i have these three chairs you know uh thank you for noticing or whatever he says and then if he's like hey do you want to come back to my hotel after this that's where you say stay quiet or you change seats or you say sorry sir i'm not going to talk to you anymore or whatever you need to say right in order to end that situation but the mind in the unenlightened state when it has this conditioning which we might call clinging or craving holding on to these things it kind of builds this wall between you and other people and what you're looking to do is break down and eliminate that from the mind so that you can be more open and more loving to people and understand that you now have wisdom that you understand the natural law of gamma and if you see something that is going to lean towards any problematic situation that you would then take action to ensure that you're going to continue to reside comfortably that you're not going to allow this situation to escalate to where this person could potentially do something that is going to injure you or harm you or harm this body right so you can let that go but in order to let it go you're going to need to build up enough breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity and do loving kindness meditation as well so that you can break through this wall that the mind has where you can't be loving and kind to just somebody who's maybe trying to have some small talk and some conversation on this long flight from Thailand to India on your way so you can just look at this individual as your uncle or your grandfather or your dad or something like this and then if you get any inclination from his speech or his actions not just what's going on in your own mind what you are experiencing is what the buddha is describing as clinging to your perception you're clinging to this perception that any man potentially i'm just kind of thinking based on what you're sharing any man that talks to me while i'm traveling alone must be trying to take advantage of me in some way 
that's the mind clinging to its perceptions. And now you're going to now make certain decisions, which are volitional formations, that you're now clinging to those volitional formations, and you can't make wise choices to be loving and kind in these situations. So you would like to eliminate your clinging to your perception, and that's eliminating the conditioning of the mind and purifying the mind to just take it on face value. This is a 50, 60-year-old man, and he's just saying something, uh, trying to have small talk about the seats, and he hasn't made any inclination that he's interested in anything other than just having a small conversation. And you can just smile and be cheerful. As I've mentioned to you before in some of our conversations, the more enlightened that you become, you're going to see more and more people are interested in talking to you. You're going to see this because you're going to have this brightness and this radiance and this smile, this brightness in your eyes. You'll be in airports, you'll be at bus stations, you'll be at restaurants. People are going to talk to you. And not every person who talks to you is interested in wanting anything from you or expecting anything from you or looking to do harmful things to you. So you're going to need to get comfortable with that and be able to understand that you can make wise decisions to ensure that this body stays protected through your wise decision making. And that's how you ultimately can break through the walls by continuing to do your meditations of breathing mindfulness and loving kindness, and then practicing generosity and loving kindness as well. And if this was a long flight, for example, and you realized that you were maybe unkind in the situation, one of the things that you can do to kind of clean up your karma a little bit is that, okay, maybe you thought about it, you realize that, hey, he doesn't mean any harm. He's just having some small talk. Maybe when you get up and go to the bathroom, maybe you talk to the flight attendant, maybe you purchase like a, a little candy bar or something, and then you give it to him as like practicing generosity, right? And sometimes people think that if I give someone a candy bar or I give someone a gift, that means they're going to think that I want something from them. And now that's an open door to them coming in and doing something else, right? But you're going to need to learn this natural law of gamma really well that practicing generosity doesn't mean you're opening the door for some kind of sexual advance or anything like this. Instead, you're just practicing generosity. And if they interpret your generosity as something more than just generosity, like you're opening the door to some kind of sexual advance, then that's where with your wisdom, you will just make wise decisions to ensure that you in that conversation or you move on from that situation or you make it very clear that it's not your intention at all. Maybe you even get a candy bar for him and his wife so that you're practicing generosity and this will kind of clean up your gamma of being unkind in that situation. Right, yeah. Yeah, but from what my experience, I felt like because he tried to like uh, when we were wait in waiting rooms. He tried to sit uh, next to my chair, and then there were a certain other things. So I wasn't feeling comfortable. So mm -hmm. and I thought about like uh, he he could have like a daughter of my age, or I I thought about it, and he was just missing her and tried to talk with me but it was a kind of suspicious because he was putting so much efforts in talking to me mm -hmm. and like uh, presenting him in a certain way so yeah it wasn't comfortable for me but uh yeah i also thought like he couldn't be like the wrong person and then then 
yeah i don't know uh so what to do like uh, because there are so so many people out here like uh doing certain kinds of things like uh, if they are in a group of friends they are like if they see a girl they would talk uh, something like mm-hmm. certain topics or like to to like address it to a girl but then they're also talking amongst themselves so it just makes me feel uncomfortable so what causes an individual to feel uncomfortable their own cravings okay (laughs) (laughs) right so this gentleman didn't make you feel uncomfortable it was your own cravings desires attachments you're clinging to the form you're clinging to feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. That's what's causing the mind to feel uncomfortable. You've got to just see it for face value, that this person is interested in talking to me, and that's it. They're just interested in talking to me. Because you can go around the world being fearful of everybody who talks to you while you're traveling alone, You know this particular type of person that looks this particular way and does these particular things. You can walk around and be fearful of all those things, but that's a really difficult life to live or you can walk around the world with a smile on your face and know that there's going to be lots of people who are interested in talking to you because you look cheerful you look bright you're interesting perhaps and maybe they would like to just talk to you and have a conversation and if at any point you see the conversation going in a direction that you would prefer it not to go you just get up and walk away and you just get up and leave and say sir i'll see you later i'm going to go over here and you just excuse yourself out of the conversation and you leave A conversation doesn't mean that you're going to end up injured or hurt or taken advantage of or something like that. So you need to eliminate any of that conditioning and realize that you've got wisdom to be able to step away from a conversation if you see that it's going in a direction that you would rather it not go in. Right, yeah. Because Yeah, I I talk uh, to certain other people, but then, yeah, when... I don't know. It could be, yeah, it is because of my perceptions and everything. Yeah. It is your perceptions. It's your cravings. So there's two options. You can go around the world being fearful of everybody or certain people, right? You can go around being fearful. Or you can go around and just realize with your discernment, with your wise decision making, at any point if you see something that's not going a particular way that you would prefer to go, you can just make wise decisions to remove yourself from that situation. Right, but I feel fearful like it would happen. And so, so you're, I acted in those ways. Right, that's so the mind I'm clinging. Ahead, ahead of time. Right, that's the mind craving and clinging, right? Like maybe you've seen a certain number of news stories of Indian women being taken advantage of in Indian society and they're traveling alone and, and they end up having all these unfortunate circumstances and now your mind's clinging to that perception you're clinging to those things and thinking that ah this is what's going to happen to me when i travel alone so you need to clear your mind out of that and realize that everything is happening as cause and effect or action and result it's based on your decisions so you're in the middle of an airport with all these people around Nothing's going to happen to you. And if something started happening, you can just move towards a security guard or a flight attendant or something like that. And people would help you. Or if you're on the airplane, uh, this conversation isn't going to uh, turn into you being hurt or injured. So as long as you're clinging to all these five aggregates, you're going to have these kinds of situations 
where what you would like to do is eliminate that clinging and just have discernment or wise decision making. And then that wise decision making is going to ensure that you only experience wholesome results. Right. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Looks like Max has a hand up. If you'd like to ask your question, you're welcome to Max. Hello. Uh, can you hear me okay? I sure can. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great, thanks. So my question is about craving and the analogy about the field and farming. Um, I like that analogy. I've never heard that before in your talks. So, and I thought about so many things while the previous speaker was talking. So it sounds like we can definitely control how much we water that field of craving, which sounds good. I was wondering if there was a fourth element involved in the three elements of the field, you know, the field, the seed, and the water, the craving. And then we talked about the being. So my initial thought was the fourth element could be the mind. But my actual question is when you were talking about the baby, you know, a newborn baby has no idea about true reality. So I'm wondering, how does that baby water its field with craving? You know, is it by just wanting and wanting things by, by crying? And then I thought about a situation while the previous speaker was talking about craving. If I saw somebody kind of being called at by a group, my initial thought was, oh, well, I'll say something to the group. And then I thought it might be better to say something to the individual later. And I'm realizing both of those are pretty banks. That's more of just a statement. But, uh, that's all. Thank you. Okay. I will try to answer your questions, but since there was multiple things in there, if I don't answer something, feel free to come back in with a follow-up. So I'm going to focus on the one that you were talking about with the field, the seed, and the, and the moisture. Because it sounds like you might not be 100% clear what the Buddha was sharing there. Remember, the field is the gamma. That's the, the gamma. The seed is the consciousness or the mind itself. That's the seed. And now the craving is the moisture. That's what's feeding the seed. That's what's feeding the consciousness to continue to come into the world over and over and over again. So what you would like to do is get to the point where you're extinguishing all your cravings. So therefore, this seed can't continue to grow. The consciousness can't continue to come back into the world and generate over and over and over again. So there isn't a fourth thing that you need to figure out. The Buddha's already figured it out for you. And it's just a matter of understanding those things, that those are the things that he's talking about in relationship to renewed existence. That if there's gamma to be experienced, meaning unwholesome gamma, then there's going to be this seed and then the craving is what's feeding that seed, the moisture. You might have not studied with me before when I taught chapter eight in the group learning program, or I'm sorry, chapter nine, but actually chapter eight and chapter nine in the group learning program where I teach the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. These are the three things that are producing unwholesome gamma. So as long as there's craving, as long as there's anger, as long as there's this ignorance or unknowing of true reality, an individual is going to make unwise decisions 
through that craving, anger, and ignorance that then produces unwholesome results. And as long as those unwholesome results are still being produced through craving, anger, and ignorance, then there's going to be unwholesome karma to be experienced in this life or some future life. So even though the pollutions of mind boil down to the 10 fetters at a high level, you're understanding them as craving, anger, and ignorance. And what you're doing on the path is you're working to bring those down where you're ultimately eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance. And then those are referred to as the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. And then what you're doing is you're working to bring up the wholesome roots, which are generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. Because when you make decisions through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, it's going to produce wholesome gamma or wholesome results. So over the consistent long-term training of the mind, the various tools and techniques that the Buddha is providing you is to extinguish that craving, anger, and ignorance, which ultimately boils down into the 10 fetters. And then you're arising up the generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And this is what's going to extinguish all your unwholesome gamma. There won't be any unwholesome gamma to experience. That by the time you get to enlightenment, you've already experienced and extinguished all your unwholesome gamma. And you're only making wise decisions because now your mind is fully awake to the natural law of gamma. And you're only ever making wise decisions that are going to now produce wholesome results for the rest of your life. This is why by the time you get to enlightenment, everything's peaceful, everything's joyful, life is very fulfilling, very satisfying. Because before enlightenment, an individual is unawake. They don't understand the wisdom of the natural law of gamma. So they're making unwise decisions that is producing these unwholesome results. And then when those unwholesome results are being experienced in the unenlightened state, we will typically blame other people for those things. But if you understand the natural law of gamma and that it's your decisions that are leading to these results that you experience and you bring down your craving, anger, and ignorance and you rise up this generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, you can ultimately get to the point where you've extinguished all your unwise decisions and the unwholesome results or the unwholesome gamma. And the way that you do that is through only making wise decisions as you're progressing forward on this path and learning more and more of the path. The Eightfold Path being the core central teaching that you need to learn to be able to bring up your wise decision making and extinguish all your unwholesome gamma by producing only wholesome gamma. So is there something that you had in there, Max, that I maybe didn't talk about or didn't answer for you? No, that all sounds good. I think I was saying, I was saying, uh, craving is the water that we're watering the field kind of that analogy but it sounds more like craving is always happening and it's up to the individual to just be aware and not act um the closer you get to enlightenment that was and then the analogy of the baby could the baby be thought of just as pure craving so the cravings are there in the mind as long as it's unenlightened once the mind is enlightened, there won't be any cravings there. And that craving, it isn't to manage them or be observant of them. You're looking to extinguish them. So that mental longing and strong eagerness, the chasing after the objects of your affection, where the mind's chasing its wants. You would like to not do that. You're interested in training the mind that, yeah, you're going to have certain needs in life, that you fulfill those needs, but 
those are things that you need, right? And you, you pursue those things. Whereas if you allow the mind to keep craving and chasing after the things you want and expect and longing and yearning for, you're going to ultimately end up in dissatisfaction at some point in that discontentedness. So it's not a matter of managing it or being observant of them. It's a matter of extinguishing them. And that's where breathing mindfulness meditation in generosity is generalized training to be able to help you do that. And then there's other teachings that you need, which is part of the Eightfold Path. And I'm not sure that you've studied that with me yet, but coming up January 1st through January 5th, there's a course here in Chiang Mai that I'm going to be teaching, and I'm going to be live streaming it as well, that you're welcome to attend that if you like. But there's also been many recordings of me teaching these various teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, because I'm not sure if you studied that with me yet, Max, but that's the core of what it is that you're going to need to learn in order to really get your arms around what this path is all about in extinguishing these cravings. And in terms of like the baby, yeah, you could think of a baby as a term in terms of a bundle of craving, right? Because that's what it essentially is when it comes out that you know, give me food, give me water, give me diapers, give me a soft blanket, give me this, give me that. And slowly but surely, we evolve as human beings, this body matures, but the mind is also maturing as well. And with a family that doesn't understand these teachings, craving can continue to persist in the mind. So as our son was growing, we understood craving, desire, attachment. So we were doing things with him even when he was an infant to help him eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And then I started formally training when, when he was six years old. So now at the age of 11, he very rarely experiences any discontentedness, maybe once or twice a year. And when he does, it's very minimal. It's very insignificant when he does, and it's over with pretty readily. So this is something that an individual can experience if they're born into a family that understands these teachings and can help them train their mind, which is something that we did with our son. But for the most part, when a baby's born, yeah, there's a lot of craving in the mind because of its previous rebirth. And we all experience this. But now in this life, you can get to a point where you're actively working to eliminate these cravings. And you have this consistent, ongoing kind of proactive training, which is the breathing mindfulness meditation, the generosity and other things. But then there's kind of like in the moment training that where you notice with your mindfulness that the craving is arising, you can cut that off and let it go and restrain the mind. And this takes training to be able to do this on a consistent ongoing basis. Okay, perfect. I think I'm just really, really concentrating on that analogy. Like I want to think of the seeds, like I want to think of what the trees of those seeds represent and so forth. Yeah. Uh, I am familiar of, uh, with your podcast and, and such, and I really enjoyed listening, and I'm looking forward to you starting the new program. And thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Pleased to talk no. with you. And I think we're going to be chatting here soon. I think you might have scheduled a time for us to talk okay. privately. Yeah, sounds good. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> okay, sounds good, but, Max. Yeah, it sounds like that analogy shouldn't be taken very, very literally. Um, just kind of to give yourself a third-person viewers. To give yourself a bird's eye view, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it can help you put some things into perspective, but you're not looking to really wrap your mind into it in too much detail. Just look at it very simply. The Buddhist teachings at their heart are very simple and very straightforward, but sometimes the mind tries to complicate them. That's that, 
you know, mind doing what it typically does, which is frolic around in the forest. And now that you're seeing that, you can be like, no, mind, get over here. Don't take that so seriously and so literally. Just take it, take it very simply. All right. So, okay, do you have something else, Max? No, just saying thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Pleased to help you. It looks like Tonka has some questions here as well. Could you talk about difference between quality of acting and being? We could act wholesome, but not be wholesome on a being level. Uh, I'm not 100% sure what you're talking about there, Tonka, but let me try to answer based on what I'm understanding. And then like I've shared with Max, if there's some follow-up, feel free to, to ask that. Um, an individual can have a certain degree of wisdom in the mind and then take action upon that and be making wholesome decisions based in their wisdom and then experiencing a certain amount of wholesome results. But then there can still be a certain lack of wisdom or ignorance or unknowing of true reality about other things related to the path to enlightenment and the natural law of gamma. And now you're making unwise decisions related to those things. And now you're making those decisions that are then producing the unwholesome gamma, or the unwholesome result. So on your journey to enlightenment, as you're bringing down the craving, desires, attachments, as you're bringing down the anger, the hatred, the ill will, as you're bringing down the ignorance and unknowing of true reality, you're still making unwise decisions. But the more wisdom that you cultivate, that's coming down more and more and more. And the more dedicated, the more diligent somebody is, they can decrease their craving, anger, and ignorance more and more significantly and increase their generosity, love, and kindness, and wisdom so that they can get to a stable ground where they're making wise decisions. Even if you could snap your fingers today and you could instantly know all the teachings of the Buddha, which you can't, but even if you could, you could snap your fingers, you're still going to be experiencing unwholesome karma for a period of months and maybe even a few years because you've made unwise decisions in the past that are going to now come back to you and that you're going to experience those for the next year or two or three. Your job now is to use that wisdom to now extinguish those unwholesome decisions that are coming back to you, that unwholesome results and unwholesome gamma that's coming back to you. You're trying to extinguish that with your wise decision making. Well, you can't snap your fingers and instantly know the teachings of the Buddha. So as you're gradually learning and ramping these things up, you're gradually bringing down your unwise decisions, but you're still making unwise decisions. So you can get to a point where like, say a particular relationship, you might have certain relationships in your life where you're only ever loving and kind and friendly, and they go wonderfully for you. But then you can have other relationships that are quite a struggle and challenging because you have cravings, desires, attachments in those relationships. So this is where a certain portion of your wisdom is cultivated and you're able to function in wholesome ways there and experience wholesome results. But in other situations, you might have a lack of wisdom. You're making unwise decisions and it's producing unwholesome results. But over time, you would like to clean all that up and get to the point where you're only making wise decisions and then producing wholesome results. And be patient enough to understand that that's going to take time of the gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress as you're ramping the unwholesome qualities down and you're gradually ramping up the wholesome qualities. Let's look. Tonka here is following it up. She said, the reason for doing good may be selfish or unselfish. Uh, if it's based in craving, then it can be selfish, right? So it depends on 
what's motivating you to be able to uh, make any particular wholesome decision. If you're making a wholesome decision or you think you're making a wholesome decision, if it's based on selfishness or craving, then it's an unwholesome decision. It's going to produce unwholesome results. You might not be seeing that. You might be thinking that this is something good, but if there's a craving in there, it's going to produce unwholesome results. Here's a real simple example. If you choose to practice generosity and you're walking into a store and you see there's someone behind you and you hold the door and now you're doing something good and you're holding this door, but you have the expectation that someone's going to say thank you, there's still craving there. It's not pure generosity yet. You haven't fully purified the mind to practice pure generosity. So now you have an expectation or you're wanting somebody to say thank you. And now when they walk past you and they don't say thank you, you're going to get frustrated. You'll get irritated or annoyed, right? So that's the unwholesome result of having that craving or having that expectation. So if you're truly practicing wise decision making that is going to produce wholesome results, that's all you will ever experience. And that is going to be not based in craving. But if you base your decisions in selfishness as you're describing, it doesn't matter how wholesome everything else is. If 1% of that decision is based in craving, you're going to experience unwholesome results. You're going to need to get to every single decision is 100% based in wisdom, those three wholesome roots, that when you base your decisions in generosity, love, and kindness, and wisdom 100%, then you will experience 100% of wholesome results. Okay, she says, thank you. It's clear now. Perfect. Let me see if we have any other questions coming in anywhere. All right, I'm not seeing anything anywhere. So thank you all for joining. Thank you all for studying the teachings of the Buddha. This was a great little discussion here at the end of our class to help you guys with some kind of miscellaneous topics that you're looking to investigate. You can ask these types of questions in all of our various platforms of Facebook, of our online classes, sending a private message or scheduling personal guidance. I'm pleased to help you guys with any of these questions because these are the things that you guys oftentimes might need because there's a certain level of studying that you do in these classes and with these books and stuff like this, but then there's going down into it and penetrating into it in more detail. And that's what you're able to do when you're studying with a, a live teacher. So pleased to help you guys and support you on your journey to enlightenment. In our next Saturday class, we're going to just be moving to 10 more chapters in this book, Volume 11, The Realms of Existence. So if you'd like to read chapters 11 through 20, you're welcome to read those and glean the benefit out of that. We're going to eventually be describing all the different realms. The Buddha goes through all the different realms and it's organized to take you from the lower realms up to the higher realms. So you're going to start learning about hell. You're going to be learning about the animal realm, afflicted spirits, the human realm, the heavenly realm, and in that order. And then at, towards the end of the book, you're going to be learning about some miscellaneous teachings of how to get to enlightenment and escape the cycle of rebirth. So you're welcome to read those chapters either before class or after class. And you can also study them here in class, but if you read the content of the Buddha in the teachings that I'm sharing there as well to help you, that will help you to get the most benefit out of the class and out of the studying.
Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be in volume one, chapter 15, where I'm going to be teaching you true love, love without attachment. If you're having challenges in any of your relationships, like your parents or your life partner, your siblings, people like this, your coworkers, this is just because the mind doesn't understand and have the wisdom of practicing true love, love without attachment. And oftentimes it's very challenging for the unenlightened mind to eliminate its attachment to those people who are close to you. So by you learning about true love and practicing true love, this is actually gonna help you eliminate attachment to the people closest to you so that you can learn how to have relationships but do that with true love rather than craving desire attachment, which is oftentimes masquerading as love. So I'm going to explain to you what true love is and how to practice it so that you can get to this point where you have very fulfilling and satisfying relationships where you're practicing true love. So therefore you can experience true love and you can identify when other people are practicing true love with you. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to be sharing with you guys loving kindness meditation. I'll do a guided session with you on that and you're welcome to ask any and all questions during that class session. So perhaps I'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.